0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick. Thank you so much for joining me for this particular podcast. As listeners to this podcast series would know, I've spoken to a range of commentators and advocates for the Voice to Parliament, uh, on which Australians will be making a decision later this year uh, at a referendum to amend the Constitution. People may recall that there was a lot of noise about detail in relation to this referendum and reports that have been lying around on websites or uploaded to websites and sitting there and not really appreciating the fact that not everyone's going to go for a 200 plus page report to understand what's going on. Now, a very accessible book has now been released by Hardy Grant called The Voice to Parliament Handbook. Um, It does say you've got all the detail you need in there, I've previously spoken with Thomas Mayo, one of the co-authors, but joining me today is uh, someone who, who I've got the privilege of talking to, I happen to watch him over the years, Kerry O'Brien, uh, former anchor of a range of programs in the ABC, Tim Report, and he's been involved in Indigenous issues for some time. it will take us through the book and a few other bits and pieces as well. Kerry, thank you for joining me.
1: Tom, it's a pleasure.
0: Now... Uh, before we get on to a range of things to do with how we, how, how governments message policy, particularly around an issue like the voice, um, how did you come to write the book with Thomas Mayer?
1: Well, I had, um, I had done a, a couple of conversations with Thomas on previous books that he'd written, both of them in relation to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and he was a participant. In the dialogue, particularly the dialogue at uh, at Uluru back in 2017, when they came up with that remarkable statement and offer uh, to the rest of Australia, uh, and um, um, Thomas. So we got to know each other a little bit, and Thomas approached me uh, back in November with the idea of doing this handbook um, on the basis that uh, that there would be, and obviously there are, uh, a lot of people. Um, who want to know more about the voice? I think many people, even who are inclined to vote yes, have become a little bit worried or a bit confused about the kind of um, noise that's been created around it, particularly from the from the no campaign. And uh, and so the whole point of having the handbook is that um, is that it lays out what is really a very simple proposition, explains the background to it, and gives the history previous attempts by indigenous Australians to actually have a voice that's heard uh, in the parliament and in the corridors of government uh, when policy is being formulated that would obviously have an effect on indigenous people it's not exactly a big ask and um, and so um uh, I was I was quite taken by the idea of helping to do this if it is going to uh, clear up some of the confusion and help people make their decision on how to vote. And, and I might say, Tom, we make no excuses and um, um, no no apologies for the fact that we are both um, very much uh, on the yes side uh, of this uh, of this referendum. Uh, and so uh, on the one hand, We make clear that we are urging people to vote yes, but at the same time, and I'm speaking for myself now as a journalist of more than 50 years, that uh, it's still a matter of professional pride for me to deal in the facts and to deal with accuracy um, in, in, um, in trying to answer the most frequently asked questions and to lead people to a better understanding of the history and background of the whole thing.
0: You've been involved in some uh, some sort of initiatives and in committees, haven't you, to do with the, um, the, the First Nations, uh, Indigenous Australians, if we can use that term, over the years. What have they been?
1: Well, I, I, I've, I mean, as a journalist, uh, because of the jobs I've had and the the kind of privilege I've had to have a sort of ringside seat to history, I suppose. So I've I've been I've been a working journalist since the 1960s, and uh, and my own kind of education process on on an indigenous history that I had had pretty much total ignorance about, uh, and and I'm I'm a reflection of I think practically every non-indigenous Australian of my generation and the generations before and even younger generations than mine. Uh, who were taught nothing on Indigenous history at school, and we were certainly taught nothing uh, about the colonial history when whites arrived and the extent to which um, they went, of the 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 settlers went about in a systematic manner to dispossess Indigenous people of their own country, uh, but worse than that, to essentially commit massacres to drive them off and away from the land that they wanted uh, and uh, and uh, so uh, it it was a rude and uh, and very rapid learning curve for me when i went in 1970 as a very young journalist to Alice springs to cover a very different story uh, but but i was utterly shocked to my core uh, by the by the by the raw racism that I saw in that town. And, uh, and I went back there five years later for Four Corners, still at, I think I was about 30, 1975, and, um, and uh, reported on a, a, an Indigenous woman named Paula Sweet who'd been brutally bashed and died. And, uh, and the six young Indigenous men uh, who, who had gone to jail, uh, committed for trial for her murder, on the basis of their confessions, and thanks to two remarkable men, Jim Downing, uh, Uniting Church Minister, and Jeff Eames, the uh, uh, who was running the fledgling Indigenous um, legal service, Central Australian Legal Service at the time, uh, they took up the case. Jim Downing could speak Pitch into Jarrah, which was the language of these kids, and they were kids. I think they were sort of 18, 20, thereabouts, but they were kids. And uh, Jim Downing proved to the court beyond any doubt that the, these kids could not possibly have made the confessions that were purported to have been made in their names uh, using using, he could speak the language and he, he basically pulled those confessions to shreds. This was not a remarkable case, you know. There, there God knows how many uh, Indigenous uh, people in the Territory over the years had been railroaded into jails for crimes they hadn't committed. There was just an assumption that uh, some Indigenous people must have committed that murder, so Indigenous people went to jail. And in fact, uh, the chief suspect, as it turned out, the white de facto partner of Paula Sweet, um, um, disappeared while these kids were in jail waiting trial. Uh, Disappeared and was never heard from again. Uh, And uh, and as a result of that story and of that case, uh, the Whitlam government announced a Royal Commission uh, into relations between police and uh, Indigenous people in the Northern Territory. Five weeks later, Gough Whitlam was sacked. Malcolm Fraser became Prime Minister, and that was the end of the Royal Commission. It never happened. It took another twelve years, and I and I happened to be um, the ABC's uh, political editor in Canberra at the time, and I was sitting in the committee room in Old Parliament House where Bob Hawke had a press conference to announce the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody. Twelve wasted years. But even that royal commission, when it was held and it took place over several years, they they took an enormous amount of evidence. They came up with over 300 recommendations. Um, the end result of which, uh, 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 most of those recommendations were never taken up, up by the states. Some were, some weren't. Different recommendations in different states, and the end result is, of course, we're still getting deaths in custody. Now, um, you know, my, I I've I've covered the history. Uh, of the various indigenous milestones um, since then, like Mabo and Wick and um, and the Stolen Generations and um, and so on, and uh, and Atsic and and th- th- this is the real story behind why the voice is necessary. And it's this that um, that even after the long decades when there was absolutely no attempt. Uh, to for politicians and bureaucrats to educate themselves as to as to what Indigenous people really needed f- by way of enlightened policy, uh, they just took it on themselves to decide what they would do from their remote arrogant distance, uh, and the end result was failure. Um, what what happened after um, uh, when when Whitlam came in, he was the first to establish what, what, and we'll call them all voices, Indigenous voices to Parliament. It was it was called the NACC was the acronym and uh, and Whitlam uh, introduced this system. There were forty one Indigenous people uh, who were voted from uh, Indigenous communities around Australia, rural, regional, remote, and uh, and uh, they that that the NACC was de- to, was designed to to feed. Uh, informed advice from indigenous communities to the government and the parliament, so they could create better policy. Uh, but then Goff goes, Fraser comes in, he creates and he he changes that body. He, it becomes the NAC instead of forty-one representatives, there are thirty-five, and the the election processes have been extremely narrowed, uh, and it becomes a different body again. Then he goes, uh, Hawke comes in. He gets rid of the NAC. He eventually creates ATSIC. Uh, ATSIC has its ups and downs, uh, has some great achievements, uh, has some governance issues. Uh, Howard comes in. Howard doesn't like ATSIC. He'd voted against it from opposition. He'd called it a black parliament. And uh, he eventually holds a uh, a review into ATSIC, and everyone assumes that the review is a prelude to him axing it. But surprise, surprise, the review, which is headed by a former Liberal Attorney General from New South Wales, actually finds that ATSIC should be retained, that it does have intrinsic worth, that it is achieving some good things. It's just, it's it's drifted somewhat from its regional and rural base. And so that, that committee recommended uh, that the ATSIC uh, ties to the bush should be strengthened. Uh, Howard ignored that recommendation and basically axed ATSIC. And so that's been the story ever since. Governments come, governments go. Uh, the voice to parliament in its various forms changes. It's weakened, it's strengthened. It never gets a chance to actually to to grow and mature and evolve and reform and make changes to improve its operations. Uh, it's never had that chance. I mean, the Parliament of Australia, 10, 15, 20 years, was a total bloody mess. It was chaotic. Prime ministers came and went on a regular basis. Um, the institutions that have underpinned the democracy of this country have taken time to bed in, and mature and prove themselves, and that is still the case. Um, but but this is the first real opportunity for Australia to enshrine some kind of consistency, some kind of permanency uh, to a to an indigenous voice to government and parliament on policy and And that that is the hope that if it's if it's if it is enshrined in the Constitution, it can't be thrown out, the Parliament will always retain the capacity to make changes to it if they feel it's necessary. But because it has the moral and political force of a yes vote at the referendum, if that's what happens, that gives the voice a kind of a strength that makes it much more difficult for politicians in the future. To do what they've done with previous voices in the past.
0: There's an interesting question that emerges out of what you've said, um, because when you have a voice enshrined in the constitution, you do have the need to have something that listens, and how that listening is done is also. A significant question. Yeah. Um. It, it, it. One of the challenges I think, Kerry, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong, because you've got a few more miles on the odometer than I have. <laughs> um, is that it, even when there's a good idea in policy, it seems that it's either under resourced or departments haven't delivered or it's fallen down at priority, so there's a question of accountability, isn't there, of delivery of something, whatever that yeah. policy happens to be. The question yeah. of question of delivery. So accountability so the voice is there to advise. Yes. But what mechanism do you foresee being uh, adequate enough to ensure accountability? Which to me becomes critical when we, even when we look at the issue of robo debt, which is unrelated to yeah. the voice. You yeah. know, where the accountability comes in.
1: Well, I, I think that um, uh, I mean everything. Sort of the, these things all kind of <laughs> fit into the, the the pieces of the puzzle. Um, the 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 voice. The 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 people who would be chosen. From there, in whatever model is determined for the voice by the parliament, whether it's the twenty-five uh, representatives that is proposed in the Karma Langton report, uh, with backed up by by regional and um, and uh, and local uh, voices, but the people who would be who would be chosen by their communities to make up that voice to Canberra, not from Canberra, but to Canberra, um, the, the the people who were, were, were are chosen will, will have, in a sense, they'll have two, not masters, but they'll have two processes where they are going to be held to account. One, uh, their strength will only be as good as the advice they give. So their credibility will be judged on the advice they give to the parliament and to government uh and, and and you can then come to uh, th- this is before we get to how well policy is actually implemented and and se- there's there are other judges other judges back in their communities who are watching to make sure that they are genuinely reflecting the wishes and the wisdoms and the knowledge base of their communities in what they are putting to government and the parliament um so the, the, the people who are on the ground, who are the recipients of the policy, uh, they, will soon, they will soon speak up uh, if what is delivered is not what they've asked for or is not reflecting the advice that is given to the parliament. And, um, and, uh, and those judgments, I think, given, given the history that's gone before us and the levels of frustration... That have been picked up in the various the um, uh, the the twelve Uluru dialogues around Australia, and then the the hundred and ten uh, further uh, sets of meetings that were held by the Carmelangton people and the ten thousand people that were spoken to. I mean, these these people are going to be way more engaged in this, and and part of the part of the the process of advice to Parliament will be about the most effective means of delivery of policy, right? So, so you will have you will have the the quality of the voice being judged by parliamentarians and by bureaucrats and by government. Uh, you will have those voice representatives making judgments about how well their advice has been received, whether it's genuinely being implemented or not. You will have processes of checks and balance in the parliament, and you will have a, uh, an organic check and balance process back in those communities. And there will be far more scrutiny. Uh, I I think this will be a much more widely, much better, much more informedly reported um, process if we see uh, the extraordinary happen and the yes vote is recorded in a majority of states and a majority of people in the nation. And we actually get this up. This actually does get up. And Australia takes this opportunity. I know what you're saying about the checks and balances. The thing is, the 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 Australian Parliament, I think, has um, um, we've we've watched a corrupting of process, really, uh, over a long period of time. But most particularly, I think, in the last eight or nine years, the uh, uh, the extent to which things like uh, the processes, like the Auditor General, you know, uh, who has at times come out with scathing reports about failures of government. Uh, failures of process and so on, failures of governance, and uh, and then uh, and you know eventually the, the the government decides to ignore it or sweep it away as best they can. The media loses interest, it gathers dust, and on we go. Uh, I think that the last election has given us hope that that uh, that the people are demanding better. Uh, I think the way Teals were elected into that parliament. Uh, to a degree, uh, was a reflection uh, that uh, that the Australian public is absolutely fed up uh, with the with the failures of delivery of policy for one reason or another, or self-serving policy or a policy wrong policy that's been delivered uh, for vested interests rather than for us all. I mean, we're uh, our democracy is in a bit of a mess at the moment, and that's one of the challenges for the Albanese government. Um, but uh, but I I think part of the problem is the way the public service has been hollowed out. Uh, it's mm-hmm. not just one side of politics that's done it, but I thought that when Scott Morrison made that speech to senior public servants well, after the-
0: 2019
1: 2019. Uh, wowee. you know, your <laughs> job is service delivery. We do the policy. Your job is service delivery. I thought that was just appalling, it was appallingly delivered. Uh, it, the sentiment was awful. Uh, the message was terrible, um, and uh, and in a way, it was a a statement and and the arrogance of it to to for that to to sort of feel that he could say that, knowing that it would be reported. Um, uh, I thought that was such a low point, and and but but one way or another, has been happening with the public sector for a long time, you know. And I, I thought the hollowing out. Was evident, for instance, with the Lismore. I live up in the Northern Rivers, and so I saw the Lismore flood process close up. I saw the botched attempts to rescue people. I saw how the local community uh, filled the gap in an extraordinary way, uh, where the where the resources of government were stretched and ultimately failed. Um, there are so many indications of how of how the public sector has been hollowed out, and that's another process. I don't know how that gets turned around. Um, because, because the damage that has been done is going to take a long time to undo, and it'll be beyond the reaches of even one well-motivated government to do it. Um, you know, once, you, once, once uh, an institution like the public sector loses its integrity, uh, it's a hell of a struggle to get it back. And I'm not suggesting that public servants individually have lost their integrity, but I think that there is a level of integrity that is, I, I think the integrity of the public sector has been weakened over time through, you, and through and through and through deliberate kind of contempt of what the public sector represents and the important you, part it plays in the Australian community
0: but you there's another point that's critical to this you is that you can't outsource public sector integrity no. it's got to be built into the system you can't yeah. simply you can't simply outsource integrity because you're giving it to people who are doing a job uh, Profit. As consultants, as opposed to people for whom the notion of public service is embedded as their work life.
1: Yeah. Tom, it seems it's it's no accident to me uh, that we're seeing governments struggling these days to actually find uh, and implement um, effective policy across so many fronts. I mean, we, we see these entrenched problems and challenges that that governments are failing to address, and they're just growing. I mean, climate change, the existential one, is is the kind of is the really big one. But but um, I mean, there are so many policy challenges on so many fronts. Housing is another big one. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not going to take up your time listing them. I, I wrote
0: a. I was almost going to mention tax avoidance, but let's leave oh. that one. <laughs>
1: well look if 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 the institutions break down through lack of resources if the resources become thinner and thinner stretched i don't know what the morale is like broadly speaking it probably varies a little bit from department from department but but i just think of the some of the extraordinary talent and the contributions that have been made in the public sector over decades over many decades uh and the bad rap that the public sector gets and how easy it is to knock bureaucrats i mean uh, bureaucracy brings its own problems, and uh, and and needs its own processes to to sort of um, to kind of keep itself honest. Um, but but nonetheless, I think that um, we are paying a big price uh, for the ways the, the 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 weakening of the whole public sector process. You know, the frank and fearless advice to government that's not always been what it was cracked up to be. I might add, you know, I mean. The, the, it's a, a very strong human trait sometimes if you've got a boss to tell the boss what you think he wants to hear or she wants to hear these days but
0: it, that's probably why I'm not working for anybody else other than myself at the moment <laughs> um I have a problem I tend to tell people what they don't like
1: <laughs> well I don't regard that as a problem I think people need to be maybe we need to be a bit <laughs> sensible about how we do that but but uh honesty's not a bad quality Tom
0: Well, the. And. I think one of the one of the challenges in in dealing with um, the voice, the referendum, um, and cutting through to the community is how a government how a government communicates policy. Yeah. Um, and how you effectively do that. Um. Yeah, your book does provide people who've got to take the initiative to read more and learn more, a basic guideline to what's going on. But how does the government, you know, the Albaneses and the Bernese and the um, McCarthys and, and, and others in, in the government, effectively sell a policy position in the lead-up to the referendum?
1: Well, it's a tricky one in a way because... Um... Uh, the way the the no campaigners are trying to slant this whole thing, they call it Albanese's referendum. I mean, this is a this is a referendum that was that was essentially asked for in the most eloquent of ways uh, by one of the most representative uh, processes by Indigenous people around Australia in the in the Uluru statement. Um, the the parts of the camp at the no campaign are to try and paint the voice as a voice from Canberra when in fact it's a voice to Canberra. Um, so I, I think it's hard uh, for the government to actually play um, a um, um, uh, a high uh, a high visibility high energy campaign, uh, to get this referendum up I think that the that they're probably conscious that the running needs to be made by indigenous people themselves and the yes campaign uh, is um, pretty much run by indigenous people and uh, and so so for the for the actual campaign itself I think um i I, I think that the government will probably try, not to be too strong in the way it goes. Now, I, I don't, I'm, I'm just, I'm surmising that from what I've seen. I could be wrong. Um, and maybe they've got to step out and do more. I, I, I know that there is an enormous, um, uh, there is an enormous support for the voice across so many different um, um, significant groups in the country. For instance, I'm told that every church denomination has signed up in support of The Voice. I'm told that something like 60-plus uh, multicultural organisations have signed up to support The Voice. We're seeing sporting bodies start to address the issue. The NRL, um, Rugby League, have said that they are going to formally support The Voice. Um, and and uh, I think that there are lots of kind of grassroots groups like that uh, who are doing the same. Um but right at this moment i'm not seeing a big yes campaign being run and it seems to me that the no voice even though even though the no campaign is much smaller much less representative than the yes campaign is they seem to be getting more media coverage and therefore potentially they're reaching more people right at this minute than the yes campaign and i'm a bit puzzled and worried by that
0: um in you know Put a proposition to you on that point. Uh, is that because we tend in the media to report conflict because conflict is colourful?
1: Oh, look, I, I think there's an element of that. There's always an element of that. I'm disappointed, I must say, that I don't think that the no campaigners have been called out to quite the extent that I think they should have been for the uh, for the misinformation quite deliberate misinformation for the kind of scare campaign. I absolutely respect everybody's right to participate in a genuine debate on any policy issue and particularly an important one like this. Uh, and uh, and I certainly don't look down my nose at people uh, who say, look, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that, my inclination is to vote no, or to ask questions about it, to challenge it, fine. Uh, an informed debate is a good thing, um, but but I have always had contempt for people who try to to win their case by by either lying or misinforming, or trying to exploit fear and worse, trying to exploit prejudice. Uh, and there are elements of that in this campaign. Uh, so it's sad to me that because it, this should not be bipartisan. Uh, this should not be polarised. Uh, in the way it is becoming, uh, we sure, you know, I, I I just wish that we could all embrace at least the spirit of Uluru, at least the spirit of the Uluru statement, and treat this process with the respect that it deserves. Um, you know, sadly, the reality, you know, is is not matching that. Um, I take heart in the fact that every state government around Australia, including. When it was still in power, the New South Wales Liberal government all came out and signed signed an agreement in support of the Voice. Mm-hmm. shrined in the Constitution. Um, the truth is that uh, that uh, up to now, the the only serious political resistance to the Voice has come from Peter Dutton um, in a process that split his own party. Um, I mean. That when Peter Dutton posed those 15 questions to the government, when he was still endeavouring to give the appearance that he wasn't opposed to the voice, he was just worried. There are not 15 questions to ask about the voice, Tom. It's a really simple proposition. There are not 15 questions to ask about the voice legitimately. There are serious questions to be asked, of course. But, and, 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 you know, what will, what shape will the voice take? Well, that's a matter for the Parliament. That's a matter for the government to put up a, a proposal to the Parliament for the Parliament to debate, and then it's the Parliament that will vote on it and determine the voice, not the referendum. So we're not voting on the on the shape of the voice. We're sh- we're voting on the principle, uh, but that's not coming through.
0: I've been talking to Kerry O'Brien, who uh, who's been uh, who's seen more uh, more things and in his life than some of us have through his career in journalism and, el- and elsewhere, about the Voice to Parliament Handbook, a new book that he's written with Thomas Mayer explaining the referendum to people. I've had a look at it, read through it, even read the cartoons by Cathy Wilcox, which you'll enjoy. To um, so Go out there and get it. Look, Kerry, um, it, it's a, where can people keep track of what you're doing now, um, given that you're not on telly uh, well I'm I'm just I'm
1: just responding to invitations around the country Tom to and speaking through the media where I can um going to events um the book is uh, is out now in the bookshops and um and it's designed as a small book it's designed I mean I I couldn't fit it into my back pocket but I could fit it into my inside coat pocket it's a very easy thing to cart around with you and and um and and it's not expensive so um so buy up copies for members of your family or your circle of friends and um uh and and you know run your own debates run your own kitchen table uh, conversations uh, the thing what one of the one of the kind of sentiments that we've heard expressed is people saying look um i i want to support the voice i want to persuade others uh to vote for the voice but I'm worried. I don't want to have arguments. I don't want to get into conflict. And I'm worried that I don't quite understand it well enough when they say these things. So that is exactly what the book is designed for, to give you the confidence, give you a sense that you really do understand it, that it really is the simple proposition that we say it is, and that you don't get bamboozled by by, uh, irrelevant questions or questions that are designed to distract. But the conversation's can be, should be, and need to be respectful. You know, we can have respectful conversations about this thing and we'll be a better nation for it, I have to say, without trying to sound corny.
0: Um, look, Kerry, you've been really generous with your time. Um I look forward to uploading, uh, putting this podcast up and um, letting people hear what you've had to say. So thank you so much.
1: Well, Tom, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity and for having the interest in this. Thank you.